Hi everyone, welcome back to part two of the Final Exam Review, right, for fall 2022. All right guys, so picking up where we left off with popular sovereignty, uh, we'll now discuss a little bit about the Compromise of 1850 and then all the way to the election of 1876. So with the Compromise of 1850, right, this is where the nation's struggling to deal with the added land, again, a massive amount of land, right, ranging from parts of Texas all the way through to California, and how to incorporate these lands into the Union or the United States. With a big question of how to keep the country, um, you know, not, not so split up or divided on the issue of slavery versus freedom or slavery versus free in, in regards to what is the status of these states. So the big kind of drama is, you know, you have a time period of a lot of weak presidents and one-term presidents with, uh, you know, Zachary Taylor being voted in 1848 to kind of deal with uh, some of these issues so he tries to kind of get the fast track to get new mexico and california admitted as fast as possible but a lot of southern politicians had an issue with that because they felt like those lands had not been opened up to southern you know expansion quite yet and at least the potential of slavery was lost with that and so instead what ensues is a lot of kind of drama and political maneuvering back and forth with eventually you know taylor passing away from an illness and henry clay being able to kind of develop a at least the structure of a compromise known as a compromise of 1850. Now, so the core of it, right? Texas is a slave state. California admitted as a free state. New Mexico is basically going to be kind of delayed until it can be settled further. And then there's other, you know, uh, sort of uh, issues dealt with. Uh, the North wanted the ban of slavery in Washington, D.C., right? The capital. And the South got the enforcement and uh, strengthening of the fugitive slave law, right? Which gave slave hunters, bounty hunters, right, chasing escaped slaves in the north, a lot more leeway, a lot more power when it came to retrieving those people and getting them back to the south. So that'll be a way they please kind of both regions of the country. But then this is a good example of how bad things are getting with the sectional crisis, right, that we're about to get. And, uh, you know, with this, is able to keep peace for about 10 years before, of course, the beginning of war, the beginning of secession kind of gets started. All right, guys, uh, other kind of key moments right of the decade. Uh, the Dred Scott case, uh, 1857, right, Supreme Court case, where a slave was suing for, for their freedom because they had been up for a long time in Wisconsin territory, which was free land or free territory, right, north of the 3630 line. And uh, the idea there uh, for Dred Scott and the case uh, result uh, issued by Chief Justice Roger Taney is that uh, Dred Scott had no, you know, basically reason to be there because they are not or he is not a uh, citizen of the nation, right? No rights under the Constitution. He is property. He is a slave. So that was a big kind of hit to the North. South, you know, very much kind of uh, re relishing in the results of this case. And the second element of it was basically stating and shooting down Congress's right to even uh, regulate slave uh, slavery in new territories. So put a lot of things into question with the 3630 rule that, again, had been in place by this point for many, many decades and had kind of been reinforced by the 1850 Compromise as well. So, again, a big hit for abolitionists, a big hit for the North and the South. Uh, again, uh, you know, likes the result of that case, of the Dred Scott case. Uh, again, a couple years later, right, in 1859, we have John Brown's raid in uh, Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Remember, John Brown is this radical abolitionist who is okay with hurting people for the case of abolitionism or the cause of abolitionism. And him and along with his followers, many of them is his own children, uh, take this federal armory in Harper's Ferry with the hope of leading a slave rebellion that ends up kind of withering away and, you know, dying out after not too long. But, you know, the spectacle of him, what he represents, shocks and scares the South quite a bit. In the North, he's by some considered a martyr and a hero. 
So this is how bad things are got that you know have, have gotten that the sides are kind of in open conflict with each other, and you know some people take it into their own hands whether to uh, try to do something about it. Uh, you know, in the lead up to the Civil War, so it's 1859, and we're pretty close. Um, just to talk briefly about abolitionist literature, right? The main two I want you to know about the two I mentioned in the notes, which you should have, but that is the 1852, um, you know, book, very popular bestseller, right, of Uncle Tom's Cabin, written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And again, this is, becomes kind of a, you know, a big hit for its depiction of um, slavery in Texas and you know, kind of the horrors of it, right? The whippings and the beatings and stuff like that. So it's going to be the way, a lot of, um, you know, pop, you know, the way a lot of popular opinion is shaped about the institution of slavery and its practice in the South. It's only going to strengthen that kind of abolitionism and that divide between the North and the South. Again, another example is a uh, book that is published a bit later, I want to say 1857, called uh, written by a guy named Hinton Helper, which is the impending crisis of the South. That takes a little bit more of an economic kind of look at the issue and problems with social social system and social classes and the issue of, you know, that over-reliance on agriculture in the South and how it's going to hinder them or hurt them in the long term. So those two books get really, really important. One as a bestseller, the other, um, you know, as a an academic or maybe more of an academic or scholarly approach to, um, you know, this abolitionist issue and the whole debate between free and slave. Uh, again, we also need to talk about the rise of the Republican Party, right? That a byproduct of a lot of resentment after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right, is helped uh, to get passed by Stephen Douglas and open up, opens up this question of popular sovereignty and kind of avoiding the 3630 rule. Uh, so a lot of, you know, northern Democrats and, you know, Whigs are very, very disappointed by the, that issue, urged by abolitionism, and they form this new party now known as the Republicans, right, which... Again, kind of coming from somewhat nowhere, right, but uh, taking shape in the mid-1850s and winning the election of 1860 with Abraham Lincoln's victory. going to be a huge kind of success story and a pretty amazing story in political you know, uh, history in the United States. Um, good. All right, guys, so the Civil War is such a grand topic. There's no way I'm going to finish it all here, right? But the main thing to understand is the causes, right? Short term is the election of 1860, which is the victory of Abraham Lincoln in the uh, general election. Especially the way he won, right? Dominating the North just kind of scared the South because, um, you know, this idea that the North can kind of win any election as long as they're consolidated uh, and they, you know, have their candidate kind of scared the South for this political future. You know, the view is if they can beat us for the presidency, you know, what's to stop them from passing whatever laws they want, right? With our, with our you know, uh, input and stuff like that. So that's the key is, you know, once Abraham Lincoln is elected, we have for South Carolina and then the ensuing eventually 11 states withdrawing from the Union. And we have the first battle at Fort Sumter. And we have key battles like Antietam, Bull Run, right? A lot of some success early on from the um, South especially. And so eventually the North is able, with key victories at Vicksburg and Gettysburg, to really turn the tide. Again, in between there, right, you need to know a little bit about the strategy, how the North was more industrialized, had more railroads, more men. And the South, you know, had some things going for them, such as the conditions to achieve victory, right? Basically defensive. And uh, a little bit maybe morale, especially in the beginning, be a little bit more powerful for the South. But this is a four-plus-year war, right? It's going to take everything from both sides and a heavy, heavy cost to pay. But again, Vicksburg, very important because of the whole sort of anaconda plan, right? The plan to um, dominate the Mississippi River and split the uh, southern forces. The blockade works pretty well during the war as well for the northern navy. And then for the South, right, the big failing was the lack of ever getting that alliance that they hoped for from France or England uh, and based on that relationship with cotton. So it would be one of the things that hurts them during the, the war. 
As far as the aftermath of the war, right, is radical reconstruction. This is basically the time period right after for, you know, 12-ish years or so, the nation's really going to struggle with rebuilding the country. And that the problem is, of course, you have Abraham Lincoln's assassination just after the war, only a few days. And then the ensuing years of, you know, uh, what to do and what, to, what exactly is going to happen with issues like racism, the Jim Crow laws, all that. So some of this is cemented by the Civil War amendments, right? We have the 13th. That was the last kind of big accomplishment by Lincoln, which is the one that banned slavery right, forever in this nation. So that is the 13th Amendment. And then 14th and 15th are a good reflective kind of gauge for what happens with Reconstruction in that, you know, the North and the Northern Republicans especially are trying to do their best to protect African-American interests. But in the end, of course, that really won't last too much. But 14th, right, citizenship for African-American males. And 15th, basically securing their right to vote. So 13 free, 14th citizenship, 15th vote is usually how we kind of try to teach and how we try to get people to remember it. And then the election of 1876 is important because this marks the end of Reconstruction. You know, in essence, the election is too close to call between the Republican and the Democratic candidate. And you know, in essence, what the Republicans do and the North does is cut a deal to make sure that their candidate, a gentleman by the name of Rutherford B. Hayes, is granted the presidency. And in return, what the South is asking for, for their support for Rutherford B. Hayes, is an abandonment of Reconstruction, right? Um, they want all the North Northern forces to go home and to leave the South to be. And this is exactly what happens. Um, you know, has a whole bunch of, you know, uh, implications from, you know, situation with labor and all that to the rise of groups like the KKK, meant for political intimidation. But this is how this course ends with that uh, deal that's made between the North and South to end Reconstruction after 12 years, a very rocky 12 years, of course. Um, good. And again, I know this is kind of more of an overview. You can Take a look at your notes, right? That's a key thing. You have sources on Canvas. You have the American EOP as well. And of course, I'm always here if you have questions. But good luck, and we'll see you in class. Take care.